The Curbsiders podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only. And the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. For the more of the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host and should not be interpreted to reflect the official policy or position of any entity aside from possibly catch like more hospital and affiliate outreach programs. If indeed there are any, in fact, there are none. Pretty much we are responsible if you screw up. You should always do your own homework and let us know the rule. Welcome back to the Curbsiders. On tonight's show, Paul, we will be discussing some hotcakes. And Paul, guess what? This is coming out Thanksgiving, so you know what that means. This is, what are we going to call this? Hot tofurkey cakes? Is that what we settled on? I I don't think I agree to any of that, no. (laughs) All right, well, uh, if I haven't said it yet, uh, this is the Curbsiders. I'm Dr. Matthew Frank Watto, here with my great friend, Dr. Paul Nelson-Williams. And Paul... Uh, hotcakes, can you, you want to tell people what that is and then remind them what this show generally is? <laughs> sure. Yeah, no, the hotcakes is where uh, we and our expert team review practice changing question mark articles that have come out or sort of tickle our fans here <laughs> that we think might have some educational value to them. And um, luckily, we've brought a, a bunch of ringers in that are very smart that will sort of talk us through the articles and how we should think about them, or at least how they think about them. As a reminder, when we're not doing that during other episodes, we are well, no, we're always the internal medicine podcast, no matter what we're doing. Uh, typically, we use expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice changing knowledge. But as you mentioned, this is one of the rare instances where tonight we are the experts, the experts are us. Um, more so the gigantic team we have assembled here, not just the two of us, Matt. I guess I should say who's here uh, up front, just because they may hear voices before people present their articles. So with us, we have three great guest hosts and uh, presenters who will be talking through some articles. Dr. Ira Krizhanovskaya, who you may know from the Curbsiders Teach podcast, one of the two co-hosts there. Dr. Nora Toronto, who is the editor of the Digest, where most of these articles have been featured, and Dr. Rahul Ganatra, who is our resident, uh, Paul, are we calling Rahul a whiz kid uh, in epidemiology or critical appraisal? Critical appraisal, yeah. Critical appraisal whiz kid, I would say that's right. Yeah, that feels feels correct. (laughs) This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Navigating life's challenges can make you feel unsure, and it's it's a time of change for a lot of people. I, I think the past couple of years have prompted a lot of us to sort of reevaluate things and try something new. Uh, and as we sort of face the challenges that come along with that, it's normal to feel stuck because unfortunately, life doesn't come with a user's manual, and it's it's hard to know how to correct certain behaviors and how to process thoughts sometimes without a little bit of help. And therapists are trained to do that. They can help you figure out the cause of challenging emotions and learn productive coping skills. BetterHelp has connected over 3 million people with licensed therapists. It's convenient and accessible anywhere, and it's 100% online. I'll say it every single time, it's a stressful time, and therapy can help you learn coping skills. It can sort of help you identify how you respond to emotions and can help you maybe develop more productive behaviors to help you move forward as opposed to feel like you're running in place. As the world's largest therapy service, BetterHelp has matched 3 million people with professionally licensed and vetted therapists available 100% online. Plus, it's affordable. You just fill out a brief questionnaire to match with a therapist, and if things aren't clicking, you can easily switch to a new therapist anytime. It couldn't be simpler. No waiting rooms, no traffic, no endless searching for the right therapist. Learn more and save 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com curb. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot curb.
Ira, so first up, you have an article, and if you want to tell us at least the first author and uh, the name of the article, and then uh, let's let's get some top line results and start the, the discussion. You got it, Matt. So this is by um, Dos Santos and colleagues. This is the Association of the Weekend Warrior and Other Leisure Time Physical Activity Patterns with All Cause and Cause Specific Mortality, a nationwide cohort study. This was published in JAMA IM this summer, and their question was, does performing the recommended levels of weekly physical activity in one to two sessions labeled weekend warrior versus three or more sessions labeled as regularly active participants influence mortality. Now, this trial riffs off of the 2020 WHO published physical activity guidelines, which if you're like me, we're like, what is that again? Like, I probably should know that. But basically, <laughs> adults are supposed to do um, 150 to 300 minutes of moderate activity or 75 to 150 of vigorous activity per week. And the gap in the literature here was it wasn't clear if reaching those recommended WHO guidelines in a concentrated way had a different or had different health implications than reaching them in a spread out way throughout the week because there's feasibility implications to doing that concentrated physical activity. And they use the term weekend warriors, but I think it's just because it sounds great because honestly, doing physical activity on Tuesday and Wednesday in that concentrated time is the same as doing them on Saturday and Sunday. So it doesn't have to be the weekend. So no, no worries if people's weekend is actually their Tuesday, Wednesday. I, I like to see some smart branding from a journal or, you know, from the art, article's author. That's, that's good. Right. Good like them. Tuesday is the new Saturday or Wednesday is the new Sunday. Yeah. Um, and so they hadn't, um, all this trial also had, hadn't, um, kind of hit that gap yet of the frequency of physical activity and the total volume of physical activity that was needed that hadn't been evaluated fully in the literature. So, um, this was a prospective cohort study, including 300,000 adults and their self-reported physical activity via the U.S. National Health Interview Survey from 1997 to 2013. And their data was linked to the National Death Index through December of 2015. And in terms of the comparison groups, their comparisons were participants by self-reported activity level. So those folks who are physically inactive, less than 150 minutes per week of moderate to vigorous physical activity, or physically active, greater than 150 minutes um, of moderate or greater than 75 of vigorous activity. And again, they also looked at intensity and volume and compared that to all-cause mortality, um, cardiovascular mortality, cancer mortality. And they only had access to death um, as reported in that national death index. And so major causes of death only. Now, punchline, um, Matt, were you going to say something? I was, that's what I was going to ask. I was like, so let's get the top line results and then we can dig in a little more, under, get under the hood of this a little yes. bit more. So top line results, when we compare to people who didn't exercise at all, all active groups had less mortality, which is like winning, right? But there was similar mortality outcomes for weekend warriors and regularly active participants. So again, this is good news for folks who are planning to exercise on one to two days. And they looked at this again as hazard ratios for all-cause mortality for weekend warriors being um, 0.92 and for regularly active participants, 0.85. And so the bottom line for this, if people are asking kind of, I think about it as exercise is mortality reducing. So it doesn't matter if you're doing it frequently in small aliquots or similar amounts, but in concentrated one to two day period, which might be easier to fit in for some folks um, given their schedule. Um, Really exercise is beneficial to health um, and uh, to chronic disease. So really just a, a welcoming feature for those of us who do concentrated physical activity. 
So essentially, if you hit the 150 minutes a week of moderate or 75 minutes a week of vigorous activity, there there's benefit to you regardless of whether or not it's um, it's happening quicker. And Ira, now I know you spoke with the one of the authors of this trial, so we're going to get to that. But I it sounds so it basically sounds like if I exercise 150 minutes a week moderately or 75 minutes a week vigorously. I should be good for reaping some mortality benefits. I want to go to Rahul here and say, Rahul, did you, you know, the, the design of this trial, any any sources of chance bias, you know, what do you think about the the power? Those smart things that you talk about when you're appraising an article. <laughs> Help us out. Um, so this study, uh, fascinating read, Era. Thank you for giving me an excuse to read this. I'd been hearing about this, but hadn't read it yet. So I was, I was pleased to have an opportunity to dive in. So this study uh, was um, really uh, had a couple interesting uh, features about it uh, and uh, some good learning opportunities for us uh, in critical appraisal of the literature. Um, I will just telegraph my final thoughts now by saying that there was nothing that really, you know, threatened the conclusions of the paper um, in my mind. And I would welcome if, you know, listeners um, have observed things that maybe I've missed, which happens all the time, you know, please, um, you know, message us and, um, you know, tweet at us because critical appraisal kind of works best as a, as a team sport. So um, there were two or three things that I thought were worth mentioning. Um, so this study um, was a prospective cohort study. Um, and so that means that the comparison groups were defined by the exposure. Uh, in this case, um, the regular uh, physical activity or the weekend warrior pattern, as Era discussed. Um, there was one source that I could identify um, towards um, biasing towards an underestimate of the relationship uh, between um, those exposures and, um, uh, and the outcome of mortality. And that was uh, the definition of uh, people who were physically inactive. We're talking a little bit ahead of time that, you know, that still included people who were exercising up to, I think, 149 minutes a week. Um, so that is definitely going to include some people who are reaping the benefits of physical activity below the recommended levels uh, in the control group. So that's likely to bias um, away from uh, the association with either activity pattern and a reduction in mortality. Um, and then another cool thing about this study was uh, the way that the authors attempted to address a problem called reverse causality. And this is where um, rather than the uh, exposure leading to the outcome, the outcome leads to the exposure. And this is kind of an interesting problem that you know it's good to be aware of and be on the lookout for. And the way that the authors attempted to deal with this was they excluded people with chronic disease at baseline. And the thought here was that if people with you know chronic disease that might limit their mobility are included, maybe it is the reality that their chronic diseases is what leads to uh, cardiovascular morbidity and mortality, not their activity pattern. So their kind of plan for um, dealing with that is excluding those people. Um, there are downsides to that, but that's that's one strategy. And then the other thing that they did was they also excluded the first two years of follow-up. And the reason for that is that you need time for exercise and activity, physical activity to kind of um, exert its benefit and affect your uh, mortality from cardiovascular causes. So a couple of good strengths of this paper. And then I'll also point out that um, residual confounding is um, always a concern we have to be vigilant for uh, in any observational research. 
Um, and in this study, there's a nice example of residual confounding by the total amount of moderate to vigorous physical activity. And you can see that in table two, where the authors um, show the um, uh, outcomes for uh, each of the three exposure groups, people who are inactive, people who are weekend warriors, and people who are regularly active. And you can see that the hazard ratios for um, uh, the regularly active folks were all suggested a reduction in all-cause mortality, cardiovascular mortality, and cancer mortality, but we don't see that same reduction for weekend warriors. So that's because the, these observations are confounded by the total amount of moderate to vigorous physical activity. And in, a, in the sort of final model where the authors did control for the amount of physical activity people were getting, we see that that difference disappears. So I interpret these results as, you know, if people are able to perform the recommended amount of physical activity, not, you know, with any regard to how it's spread throughout the week, whether it's regular throughout the week or if it's concentrated on one or two days, um, that this evidence suggests that those people still derive the same mortality reductions. So exciting study, relevant to a lot of people I know uh, in internal medicine and particularly the the residents I work with. <laughs> You're right. What did... The the author you spoke with, uh, did did he have any any other additional insights or things you wanted to share with the audience? Thanks, Matt, and thank you, Rahul. Yeah, Dr. Leandro Rosendi definitely um, highlighted exactly what you mentioned, Rahul, about um, making sure that uh, the participants were um, healthy at baseline. That that was the kind of the comparison that they needed going forward, and. I asked him about kind of the generalizability of this trial, given that the um, the study population was so healthy, and uh, he um, definitely suggested that it's generalizable for this population, and it's also you know plausible to assume that the benefits of the weekend warrior or other patterns of physical activity, as long as you're meeting meeting that time uh, recommendation, uh, is applicable to other populations as well. So. He was just really excited that um, in his epidemi epidemiology world that we're seeing kind of the benefits of exercise and the t and by type as well. And some of his group's work has been published in circulation as well and looking at the types of exercise and that, you know, the more you get, the better it is. And I think that's another kind of bottom line punchline for us with this trial is just remembering that exercise is healthy and so beneficial. And if you can only do it in two sessions, then that's great. That's, uh, it, it still works. And I saw another article talking about like resistance training at least twice a week and, you know, that, that, uh, or muscle strengthening activities, essentially resistance training also seems like it has a mortality benefit. even, and this was in patients older than 65. So it is exciting to see this kind of stuff out there. Hopefully we can convince people to do it or figure out ways to fit it into their life. But I guess the weekend warrior, this one or two sessions a week pattern makes it easier Paul, are you a weekend warrior? I I don't I don't know how to answer that. I I also exercise during <laughs> the week too, so I, I will say no. I've seen Paul. I thought you were going to get a question, so that's why I asked it. Yeah, Paul's, I. <laughs> but a Tuesday, yeah, a Wednesday a warrior. warrior. Yep. yep. All right. Well, we have to move on. Uh, Rahul, I know you have an article to talk about. Uh, this Paul, what Paul? This one's called the Waterfall Trial. I don't know if there's an acronym crammed into that, or they just like nicknamed it the Waterfall Trial. Is that is that an acronym, Rahul? You know, I don't think that this is an acronym. Uh, I think the authors were just big TLC fans and wanted to, you know, work uh, a popular song title into the study. <laughs> <laughs> 
So how about you tell us the author, the name of the trial, and uh, let's let's get into some of the, you know, the top line results here. Yes, it would be my pleasure. So this study uh, is by Dr. D. Madaria and colleagues from the Erica Consortium. And as you mentioned, it's called the Waterfall Trial. This is aggressive or moderate fluid resuscitation in acute pancreatitis. And it appears in a September uh, issue of the New England Journal of Medicine. And this paper asks the question, which is a more effective and safe fluid resuscitation strategy in acute pancreatitis? really aggressive resuscitation, and I'll define that in just a moment, or kind of more restrained, moderate resuscitation depending on volume status. So the hypothesis has been for many years that regional pancreatic hypoperfusion in pancreatitis is what leads to necrosis and other local complications. And it's been thought from animal studies that this could be mitigated with really aggressive volume resuscitation. Um, and on that basis, professional society guidelines recommend aggressive fluid resuscitations for patients hospitalized with acute pancreatitis. But the human evidence base is overall um, quite weak. And so these authors designed a randomized controlled trial to test the hypothesis um, that uh, um, aggressive fluid resuscitation uh, would be different from moderate fluid resuscitation. Um, and patients were randomized in an open-label fashion to either aggressive IV fluid resuscitation, which was a bolus of 20 mg per kg, followed by a, a continuous infusion of 3 mils per kg per hour, or moderate IV fluid resuscitation. And this was a bolus of 10 mg per kg, so half, but only if patients were hypovolemic, followed by a continuous rate of half of the, uh, the aggressive group, so 1.5 mils per keg per hour. And fluids were stopped once patients were eating, and this could be as early as 20 hours in the moderate group and 48 hours in the aggressive group. So now that you know all that, the top line findings, this was a negative study. It was stopped early by the uh, Data Safety Monitoring Board due to evidence of uh, harm with regard to the primary outcome, which I'll tell you it is in just a moment, um, uh, without any evidence of, uh, of efficacy. So the primary outcome was a composite that uh, reflects the development of moderate to severe pancreatitis during the hospitalization. And this was the development of either local complications, um, exacerbation of other underlying diseases, uh, a creatinine elevation above 1.9, hypotension, uh, or a, uh, a reduced P to F ratio. Um, that primary outcome, so a composite of bad things, occurred in 22% of patients randomized to the aggressive group and only 17% of patients uh, randomized to the moderate group. So no difference in the primary outcome, but the primary safety outcome, which was volume overload, uh, and this was diagnosed by symptoms, uh, signs, or imaging findings, this happened in 21% of patients randomized to the aggressive group and versus only 6% of patients randomized to the moderate resuscitation group. Paul, does it seem to you like we've just been like wrong about everything about pancreatitis, like feeding, uh -huh. fluids, like the two main things that, that we were always taught? 100%. But... We're dating ourselves, but I, we, I think we both trained during the time of bowel rest for pancreatitis, uh, you'll recall. And then, yeah, now this, and it was always, yeah, don't feed them and then just dump as much fluid as they can possibly tolerate into them because of <laughs> fluid shifts and other sort of nebulous reasons. So this is, uh, sorry, prior patients. <laughs> <laughs> I, I did think that there were some things, you know, we talked about uh, this trial. I think there were maybe some things that biased towards the safety outcome being more likely in like one group than the other because they, I just noticed that the fluid resuscitation could be stopped much earlier, like at 20 hours in the moderate group and had to be continued for 48 hours in the, like the more aggressive resuscitation group. 
So that seemed like it would have maybe pushed more patients towards volume overload. And then if, since it was over open labeled, like if, if you're treating that person, you know, they're getting aggressive fluids, maybe you're more likely to pay attention to like their fluid status is what I was thinking. Yes, totally. I think th- those are key observations. It, you know, for any study we've used on the show, a framework quite often of kind of conceptualizing, is this a positive study or a negative study? It's a little arbitrary, but you know, with re- respect to the primary efficacy outcome, you could call this a negative study because there was really no uh, no difference between the aggressive strategy and the moderate resuscitation strategy. So then that you know clues me in to look for sources of that being a false negative. Um, I'm not really finding any. You might uh, wonder if the study was stopped early, could this have been underpowered for the primary efficacy outcome? I'm actually not concerned for um, the study being underpowered because the point estimates actually suggested a higher incidence of the bad primary outcome in the aggressive group. And you know the confidence interval in a study that's underpowered is is wide and just crosses. Uh, unity, and you kind of wonder if we had more people with the narrower confidence interval achieve significance. I don't think that would be the case here. I mean, the you know limited data they had from the patients who were enrolled suggested that they they really was no benefit of aggressive resuscitation. And then for the safety outcome, I think you hit the nail on the head that the open label nature of this study probably did clue in assessors to kind of look for signs of uh, volume overload. Um, it's a pretty big difference. Um, so that does make me kind of think that, you know, even if there is some, um, ascertainment bias in the, uh, in the rates of that, uh, outcome of, of volume overload that based on what the, um, specific outcomes actually were, that, that probably does represent a real signal. I, uh, uh, would like to apologize to all the patients and trainees who I have, uh, you know, told, uh, aggressive resuscitation is the way to go because I really think that this article provides uh, really strong, compelling evidence that there is not really much benefit to flooding people. So I think, um, that in the tofurkey season, um, this, uh, gets five, uh, hot tofurkey cakes for me. I think this is ready to change practice. Yep. That is f- fantastic. And thank you for the, your to- tofurkey cakes rating. Actually, we forgot to ask Ira for her rating of, of the weekend warrior article, which I think we, we must get Ira. So it, it's on a scale of zero to five, five is practice changing. Uh, and then, you know, zero is this, no one should even read this. Um, you know, so that's, that's the scale we're dealing with here. Wow. That's hard, Matt. I mean, I, I am somewhere between a, a four and a five. I think this for the folks who I can share this patients specifically who can only get one or two sessions of moderate to vigorous physical activity, this is going to be a game changer. I'm going to recommend this to them and tell them that in terms of mortality, you know, things are about the same, whether it's Tuesday, Wednesday, or Monday through Friday. So it's not right. so, two hot cakes or five hot cakes. It's ooh, just it's a hundred and fifty-one hot cakes. <laughs> oh, and the cat goes on the chair. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this I is this it. is the dream of recording with video, Paul, because now people can see the cat. Which this happens every, every time every we record a podcast. Uh, I, I think I believe that's Ali is is on on the chair with Paul. All right, Paul, uh, tell us about the the sprint trial. We covered this, Paul. You and I. I mean, I feel like this is really the start of our 
podcasting relationship anyway. Uh, we had known each other for quite a long time. Yeah. Uh, Sprint Trial, episode number two of the Curbsiders. And now this is going to be episode number 400 something, Bananas. which is sad in some ways. But uh, <laughs> right. we're revisiting the Sprint Trial, Paul. So tell us about no, it. No, yeah. No, as we march towards death, I think it's important to sort of reexamine <laughs> things. And, and that includes the Sprint Trial. This episode is brought to you by Birch Living. Folks, I, I have some hobbies. I, I, I like a good book. I like to cook a good meal. I like to eat a good meal. I like running, but there is nothing in this world that I like more than sleeping. It is without question my favorite thing to do on this planet. And that's why I'm so grateful to have a Birch mattress that allows me to get a quality good night's sleep. Birch mattresses are stylish, they're comfortable, and they are environmentally conscious. I want to give all of our listeners the ability to enjoy a deep and restful night's sleep with a new mattress from Birch. They source only the finest quality materials like organic fair trade cotton, organic wool, and natural latex to create luxurious mattresses designed to give you the best night's sleep. Every Birch mattress is constructed with non-toxic materials and a focus on breathability to keep you cool at night. Plus, Birch knows there's no better way to test out a new mattress than by sleeping on it in your own home. That's why they offer a 100-night risk-free trial. Try out your new Birch mattress, see how your body adjusts, and if you decide it's not the best fit, you're welcome to return it for a full refund. Birch mattresses are shipped directly from their manufacturing facility to your door for free. The mattress comes rolled up in the box. It is super easy to set up. Birch is giving $400 off all mattresses and two free EcoRest pillows at birchliving.com curb. Again, that is $400 off and two free EcoRest pillows at birchliving.com curb. Sleep better with Birch. Um, so this is this is an update to the sprint trial. This is from Jaeger et al. Um, found in JAMA Cardiology. This is longer term all cause and cardiovascular mortality with intensive blood pressure control. A secondary analysis of a randomized clinical trial. So this is this group in essence wanted to know. So the sprint trial, as I'm sure we're all familiar with, it's I think to me one of the more one maybe the most important trials in in, in my recent practice. They looked at an intensive blood pressure control versus standard blood pressure control in patients that had elevated cardiovascular risk, and that elevated cardiovascular risk was uh, clinical or subclinical cardiovascular disease or chronic kidney disease that had a great larger cohort of sort of older patients. So it looked at patients that were at higher risk and looked at whether intensive systolic blood pressure control versus standard and improved mortality. And it turns out it did. Um, but the trial, as you recall, was ended a little bit early. It was at, like in three years and change because there was such a benefit. They're like, okay, we, we know the answer now. We should probably stop doing this. And the authors of this particular article wanted to sort of extend things out and see how we were doing well after the trial and sort of extrapolated out data and wanted to see if the the benefits of mortality, of all-cause mortality and cardiovascular mortality persisted even after the actual study period. The child participants were linked to the National Death Index, uh, and so they looked at those numbers between 2016 and 2020, so missing out on COVID, which probably would have um, thrown things off a little bit. And then for the blood pressure, they extracted the longitudinal data of systolic blood pressure from 2010 to 2020, and they only had a, a smaller cohort of patients they were looking at this with, but still a good chunk. I mean, close to 3,000 patients that they were looking at. And so basically... The cardiovascular mortality benefit was seen in the intensive arm between two to five and a half years, and then it sort of attenuated throughout the observational phase. The systolic blood pressure, interestingly, also went back to around 140 for both groups, whether they, whether they were in the intensive arm or whether they were in the standard arm. So, Paul, you're saying basically the blood pressure just, if you, if you take your foot off the gas or the brake, uh, the blood pressure just, the blood pressure just went right back up in the, in the treatment group. And then the benefits seem to just disappear by the that five-year follow-up point. 
I, I think you nailed it. I think that's why this is important. I think this probably reinforces that the results from Sprint were real because when the blood pressure was well controlled, you saw the benefits. And when it was less controlled, those benefits went away. So I, I think right. the, the the bigger takeaway from this is that, and there's lots of reasons for why it went that direction. Like this, you know, these patients returned back to their clinicians immediately after the Sprint trial and were no longer in the study. So they weren't getting these very you know, rigorously protocolized blood pressure measurements. They were not being seen every two months. They were, you know, their, their treating physicians may not have even had the same targets as the sprint investigators. So it's, there's lots of reasons why the blood pressure may have gone back up. But in any case, um, I, I think this makes an argument that tighter blood pressure control reduces mortality and that it's just, I think, an argument to be diligent and sort of, as you say, keep your, your foot on the gas pedal um, as you're treating these patients with systolic hypertension. And yeah. was there actually a difference uh, between uh, the observation follow-up period and uh, the actual trial period in the like number of antihypertensives that patients were on? Do we know or do we not have that data? It's the data may exist. I do not recall okay. it if it does. Yeah, I did not come across that either. I wasn't like digging around deeply in any supplements, so Good. that may exist, but that wasn't something I read about. Are you wondering if more medications were added on or if medications fell off? What was your, what was your question about yeah, that specifically? Yeah, kind of like that. It seems likely that some medications probably fell off in the, in the, um, the follow-up period, but if they're no longer getting free boutique arbs, right. then yeah, exactly. <laughs> I think it's a fair yeah. point. No, genuinely. I, I, I think as spending most of my time in primary care right now, it's it just, I, and Paul, maybe you find this as well. I think that oftentimes there's just so much inertia and then Sometimes patients aren't believing their blood pressure is really high. Um, people are really hesitant to add on extra medications. And I just feel like if we ever get to a state where there's constant monitoring of blood pressure, uh, like we talked about on the AFib episode recently, Paul, you know, that may help people, you know, self, self monitor, self regulate and be more adherent because they'd be more aware of it. Um, I think it's a tricky problem to treat and, and, with all that support in the sprint trial, it's not surprising that, you know, you saw benefit when it was actually controlled, but even then they couldn't get it down to below 120. Let's remind ourselves. It's hard to, it's hard to treat blood pressure. It's hard to treat blood pressure. And I, it's the absence of symptoms is, uh, makes it, I think, especially challenging. Like it's, it's hard to convince people that it's super important until something catastrophic happens. And I think that will, it's going to be sort of hard to move that needle particular, I think. Well, well, fortunately, Paul, we have a really easy trial to interpret to end the show today. <laughs> um, just n nothing, no controversy about this. Uh, I didn't see anything about it on the news. <laughs> and uh, who better to talk us through this than the great Dr. Nora Toronto? So, Nora, do you want to tell us uh, who who wrote this article and uh, tell tell us about it? So, uh, Brett Auer and Al wrote this article. It's the Nordic Study Group, Nordic meaning the Nordic European Initiative on Colorectal Cancer. And you definitely- uh, what, Pause for one moment. Uh, Paul, how do you rate the, the name of this uh, study group? Here? I mean, I, research is hard, but that's an intensely lazy <laughs> acronym. That is, they should be ashamed of themselves. I, it should have gotten zero traction until they've worked on that. <laughs> All right, Nora. So uh, you said your, your article, the Nordic trial, uh, tell, tell us about it. Indeed. So the Nordic trial looked at the effect of colonoscopy screening on the risks of colorectal cancer and related death. Um, the trial results were just published in the New England Journal of Medicine in the end of October. And the group looked at whether or not colonoscopies and specifically invitations to colonoscopy screening would decrease the risk of colon cancer <laughs> 
as well as the risk of colon cancer-related mortality and overall mortality. There have been many studies looking at uh, the effect of colon cancer screening on uh, on the risk of cancer and the risk of death, both uh, colon cancer and uh, uh, overall um, mortality. Um, but many of these have been either uh, cohort studies, so not randomized control trials, um, or they have looked at uh, uh, mo- screening modalities besides uh, colonoscopy. And colonoscopy is one of I was going to say, Nora, this was very surprising to me. Like, I just thought, I was like, oh, yeah, colonoscopy, there's got to be tons of randomized trials just showing that that's like our best. And yeah. then you you find out that there's not any, which is, you know, surprising. It's it's a very common test. Yeah, it is surprising, especially I think in the United States where it's it's the most common uh, modality. I would say I recommended to my primary care patients. I don't know about you guys, um, but uh, and perhaps this has changed a little bit in in COVID actually. But um, but I think that that's kind of the has historically been the go to screening modality here. Um, uh, though that may not be the case elsewhere. Um, and so the study actually looked at uh, populations in Nordic countries, as you might have guessed, um, in Poland, Norway, and Sweden, looked at uh, almost 85,000 men and women between 55 and 64. Um, and they compared uh, a uh, invitation to screen group with the usual care group. And kind of importantly, the usual care group was not uh, was not getting uh, invitations to screen for colonoscopy or or uh, was not getting colonoscopies or or uh, colorectal screening testing it, um, during the is it true, nor none of so none of the patients in either group had undergone screening, right? That was one of the Correct. exclusion criteria. And and the reason they were able to do that is because it's just not standard practice to mm-hmm. invite people for screening colonoscopies yep. in those countries, which was, again, I was like, what? I thought yeah. that was, this was just like, I thought everyone was doing this. Yeah. And I, um, I think, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, any of you, but um, I think that some of that has changed over the last 15 years. So there are, there are more colorectal screening protocols in several of these countries, um, but they, they did not uh, overlap with the population that was studied in this, uh, in this trial at all. Mm-hmm. So it was a pragmatic trial, which was uh, designed uh, with the intent of trying to reflect uh, as close to real-world clinical practice as possible. Um, and the the groups were uh, this invitation to screen and usual care. Um, and uh, the invitation to screen group had a uh, lower risk of colorectal cancer at 10 years. Now, that didn't translate to a uh, lower risk of colorectal cancer-related mortality or a lower risk of overall mortality. And so that's kind of an important uh, discrimination there. Um, It was an 18% lower risk uh, of colorectal cancer diagnosis over those 10 years. Um, And the number needed to invite of the screening test was 455 individuals to prevent one case of colorectal cancer. So, uh, Rahul, I'm curious, uh, kind of what, what do you make of this number needed to invite and just this study and its results overall? I, um, have a couple 
things to share with you all. Um, and I, I just want to say, I welcome, you know, any, um, questions from, you know, the group, from listeners, this is a kind of a difficult thing to decide, uh, what to think about, especially when this kind of flies in the face of what many of us have just kind of assumed was, you know, a robust evidence base, kind of like fluid resuscitation, pancreatitis. Um, but, um, so this, uh, the primary outcome in this study uh, was uh, the risks of colorectal cancer and related death. So, you know, colorectal cancer incidence, there was a reduction with screening. Um, colorectal cancer death, there was really no change. So, you know, it, this was not a uh, overwhelmingly positive study in the sense that we saw a mortality reduction that, you know, you might expect from colonoscopy. So I think for the sake of um, discussion, we can call this uh, a negative study, Okay. Um, now what we have to deal with and what we have to kind of confront is, um, do we think that this is the truth or do we think that there are reasons that this could have been a falsely negative study? And, um, there are, um, some signals for causality in the study that, um, uh, you know, I want to be cautious not to overinterpret, but I do think might provide some valuable learning, uh, for our listeners. So there does look like in the adjusted per protocol analysis that there was a dose response between the degree of uptake of colorectal cancer screening with colonoscopy and the effect size of reduction uh, in colorectal cancer deaths. So overall, only 42% of the people in the intervention group actually ended up getting a colonoscopy, which is a big drop off between the number of people who were you know, emailed in an, or who were um, snail mailed an invitation and who ultimately got a colonoscopy. Okay, so that's an important source of bias towards a null finding. But then within the the four countries that were included, the rates of uptake differed quite a lot, from a low of thirty three percent of people in Poland to a high of sixty one percent of people in Norway. And so in the adjusted per protocol analysis, the effect size on uh, colorectal cancer mortality was bigger uh, in Norway than in Poland, which makes me wonder, you know, is this a reflection of the fact that if you do more colonoscopies, uh, the um, uh, beneficial effect is able to become apparent? So that's one possibility. Another possibility is whether or not this um, study was long enough for the benefit of colorectal cancer screening to kind of become apparent. And we know from studies of fecal occult blood testing in colorectal cancer that it takes a long time, like more than 10 years um, for the mortality benefit to become apparent. So I'm kind of waiting for the, the final analysis of this study, which I think is planned for 15 years uh, after randomization, um, to kind of, you know, answer that question. And was this uh, a long enough time horizon to really see a difference? You know, the last thing I'll say, people are who want to believe that colonoscopy uh, is, you know, what we should be doing, uh, I think are, are prone to gravitate towards the results of the per-protocol analysis, which did suggest a reduction in colorectal cancer, cancer death. So it's just important to remind all of us kind of what the per-protocol analysis means and what that is. Um, so that is looking at the um, effect of the intervention among people who, who got colonoscopies, okay? And the important thing to be aware of with that is that right. when you only look at people who got the intervention as opposed to the entire study population, the intention to treat population, you are kind of sacrificing some of the benefits of randomization. And it, I don't think it's controversial to say that this study is vulnerable to post-randomization confounding and selection bias because of the fact that only 42% of people in the intervention group ended up getting the colonoscopy. 
And this was sort of a result of this being a pragmatic trial where consent was done after randomization, in contrast to how randomized trials are usually done where you consent a patient and then randomize them. So, you know, consent is kind of an important process. That's where patients are kind of told all about the risks and benefits of a study intervention. So, you know, I have to wonder, would uptake have been higher had patients had the opportunity to undergo consent uh, before randomization? So this is one of the trade-offs we make with um, pragmatic trials. Um, you know, it would be impossible to study something like this at this scale uh, by individually um, consenting every patient. So it's a trade-off we made. But I just think it's important for people to know, you know, it is important to, when you're counseling patients, have some estimate of what the effect might be in the individual. And it's really hard to extract that from a randomized controlled trial where uh not a lot of people did the intervention under study. So you're saying like the randomization pro or the the consent process, the patients essentially getting like education about why they may benefit, kind of like what we do in clinical practice where we're saying, hey, I think you should get a colonoscopy because uh, we can find cancer or polyps that could become cancer. We could find cancer early and, you know, that would potentially benefit you. So it's more a little bit like what happens in practice. And if you just get this thing in the mail, you may not read it. and I, you know, that's, I think that's one of the main limitations yeah. to me of this, of this whole thing. I do also wonder how, uh, the, the evolution of like communication modalities in medicine would affect the results of this, um, kind of what with so many more patients having access to pretty much real-time communication with medical teams and professionals who are who are doing uh, community health outreach and and saying uh, through the phone, uh, just through email or through uh, uh, electronic medical communications, um, we recommend this kind of doing behavioral nudges, like how how now uh, the the data would change. And, and I was going to say, Nora and Rahul, I wonder what y'all say, because this is relative to your comment, Nora, that some people think of this study as more of a efficacy of implementation of a screening program, as opposed to necessarily like, should we be utilizing colonoscopies for colorectal screening? But just like, are we evaluating the efficacy of this invitation um, and what y'all think about that? And my second comment is, I just want to say, as somebody of Polish descent, Poland is not a Nordic country, so I'm not clear what happened there. But I do love <laughs> that Poland was included. I'm just like unclear about our definitions of Nordic countries. But also want to feed that back. Yeah. Yeah. But also do want to hear Nora and Rahul your thoughts about this kind of evaluating more of an implementation population based screening than necessarily our colonoscopies, you know, the best colorectal screening test. Yeah. Yeah, there's a great uh, paper in the New England Journal from 2017 by Miguel Hernan on the kind of ways to do per protocol interpretations of pragmatic trials. We can link to it in the show notes. Um, and a point that they make that I think is really kind of understandable and helpful in this situation is an intention to treat analysis in a pragmatic study is really testing the effect of treatment assignment in a particular trial, not the effect of the intervention itself. Because, you know, the effect of colonoscopy screening could be different in an individual patient who has a precancerous polyp and is going to get colon cancer. And we always have this tension between trying to take average treatment effects from 
uh, large randomized trials uh, and translating them into the individual patient. So I think you're right, Era, that you know th- this was a test of the uh, invitation to colonoscopy screening uh, in this pragmatic trial, um, and whether or not you know we can really generalize to the individual patient. Um, we're going to need information beyond uh, what was uh, provided by this study. Along the lines of generalizability, I guess, and I don't know if you all know the answer to this or have gotten deep into this in your reading. I just I wonder how sure we are that this population is comparable to the population in which we serve too. You know, you think about sort of the modifiable risk factors like tobacco use and obesity and uh, alcohol consumption. Like, and I just wonder if this is sort of a one-to-one correlation with our own patient population too, and if it's directly applicable or not. Yeah. I mean, I I don't have the content expertise uh, on this that I'm sure many of our listeners will. So again, I invite, um, you know, knowledge if anyone has any, but one concern I would have about kind of abandoning colonoscopy you know, as the standard screening modality on the basis of this study is that, um, you know, you might expect that to have ramifications for um, equity of care in the United States, where we've got a bunch of different populations of, of varying risks. So I think we would have to sort of think, you know, long and hard about like who, who our patient population is and what the sort of baseline risk is for uh, lesions that might be missed uh, by um, strategies that don't involve colonoscopy. I think we're going to need a hotcakes rating for this, Nora, because I think we are at the end of the show. And uh, so will this be practice changing for you and uh, hotcakes rating for this one? What What do you think? I think I'm going to give it four because it it is a really important trial, um, but I, I don't think it will, will change my practice. And I'm excited about uh, several other trials that are in the works, uh, specifically uh, some that are comparing the different screening modalities, uh, colonoscopy and uh, fit testing. I, I think those will be those will be helpful to have. And um, yeah, I, I'm not ready. Like we said, this was more of a implementation of a screening program that that it was convincingly looking at more so than the actual how well colonoscopy works. And as Paul pointed out, different different population. So I, I think. Uh, I think we've done some great work tonight, everybody. <laughs> four, four, four articles, uh, lots to discuss. Hopefully the audience learned some things, and I know I did. So I think it's time, Paul, to go to an outro. Terrific. Will do. This has been another episode of The Curbsiders at bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Yummy. Yeah. Uh, it was anyone's to take, <laughs> but you claimed it. <laughs> I totally can't get that. Get your show notes at thecurbsiders.com. And while you're there, sign up for our mailing list to get our weekly show notes in your inbox. Plus, twice each month, you'll get our Curbsiders Digest, edited by the great Dr. Nora Toronto, recapping the latest practice-changing articles, guidelines, and news in internal medicine. And we're committed to high-value practice-changing knowledge. And to do that, we want your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts or now on Spotify. You can also send an email to askcurbsiders at gmail.com. A reminder that this and most episodes are available through VCU Health for free, CME at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org. I wanted to give a special thanks to all my wonderful co-hosts tonight for helping to write and produce this episode. Uh, this, The technical production for Curbsiders is done by Podpaste. Elizabeth Proto runs our social media. And finally, Stuart Brigham composed our theme music. Uh, which we all love. So with all that, until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Watto. I've been Dr. Rahul Ganatra. And I'm Dr. Ira Krishnovskaya. 
And I'm Dr. Nora Flout-Toronto. And as always, our main Dr. Paul Nelson-Williams. Thank you and goodbye.